you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, Since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. Amen. Am I on? Yeah, great. Very good. All right. Today, hey, welcome. Glad to see you. Yeah, totally prepared for that moment right there. But um, yeah, just welcome today. Happy New Year to you. This is your first time back. Haven't been in a while. Glad to see you today. Uh, Today we begin, as you can see, a brand new series with a whole lot of other people around the world. In our what's called our global every nation spiritual family and ministry that we're connected to called every nation and lots of folks tens of thousands of Christians just watched that same video that you saw uh, they spent this past week like a lot of us did fasting and praying and thank you for doing that I hope you survived the storm apocalypse uh, that was on Friday night very good reason we canceled our big night of worship right uh, but uh, all this month we're joining them they're joining us all we're all together looking at this topic uh, called God's amazing grace and to kick it off today I want to talk to you about what's probably my least favorite thing in life if you know me it's not a banana I don't like bananas I'm not going to talk about bananas today it's a sort of selfish deal there but now next week actually I'll talk about my favorite thing in life so hopefully you'll come back next week and hear all about that. But today I want to talk about one of my least favorite things and many, if not probably most Americans' least favorite thing. It might be your least favorite thing. And that least favorite thing is the subject of discipline. Yeah, yeah, there's a dreaded D word, right? Because really, discipline in any area is that thing that you're, that you're supposed to do, but you don't really want to do, right? It's, uh, it's the thing that, you're, as my southern family put it, you're supposed to do, supposed to do, that you don't want to do. And to make you, you know, if I want to make you feel really bad today, I could just put up a list on the screen of all the things that you're supposed to do, but you don't really want to do to live a great life. And I actually made a list, thank you, but it's not going to be on the screen. Here's a short list you need to. Brush your teeth. At least daily. Call me crazy, right? Your friends will thank you. You need to eat less. Uh, Some of you did that last week, right? Uh, Eat more vegetables. Go to bed earlier. Get up earlier. Exercise more. Read more. Watch less TV. Make sure you take time for yourself. Make sure you take time for your spouse. If you're married, make sure you spend time with your kids. If you got them, go to the doctor for a checkup and rotate your tires, right? Oh, of course, and call your mom, right? Call your mom. Discipline is the thing that you're supposed to do, but you don't really want to do. And some of you are already arguing with, with me. I can hear it. You're saying, Morgan, no, I love all this. I could do whatever is on your list because I love discipline. 
All right, fair enough. If that's you and you're here and you say, man, I just love discipline, go ahead and raise your hand today. That's cool. You've got all the extra energy in the room anyway. Uh, You're the ones who are the rule followers. So cool, you did it, right. But really, actually, I'm just going to say we didn't really need you to put your hands up. Because we already know who you are. You're the ones who already post your New Year's resolutions before New Year's even begins, right? You're the ones who are you're disciplined because we see you running past our houses every morning by 7 a.m., right? Or maybe actually we don't know who you are because you've already finished your run by the time uh, we get up. Or um, we know who you are because some of you are crazy disciplined about things like cycling, not just running, but cycling. Uh, and we see you out cycling around Austin. It's a cycling town. And actually, if you're a cyclist, of course, let me just say, not only do I think you're crazy disciplined... I think you're crazy courageous because you're out cycling, you're dodging distracted drivers all the time. And not only that, you're crazy courageous because you you wear those cycling clothes, right? And I'm going to say, I could not do that. I couldn't do that, but you do that and you're... You're amazing, but the amazing thing I think about, about discipline uh, in large in general, and probably all of us in some area have found this to be true, something that started out as discipline, something that started out as sheer drudgery or like an obligation or something that somebody made you do, at some point in your life, you may have found that thing is, that was discipline at first, turning into something that you really love to do that you just like to do, that, that you did it without someone making you. For example, for those of you whose parents, you grew up and they made you practice the piano or practice the guitar. You may have found yourself when you did it for a while and you got better at it, you, you found yourself going back to that thing, doing that. Nobody made you. Maybe you picked it up later in life, right? Uh, but of course, what I was thinking about this, what's interesting, by the way, is that no one ever goes back and picks up the tuba. Or the bassoon later in life. It's just piano or guitar, but whatever, you you know what I mean. But my point is what began as a discipline at some point became a delight. And now, now you can't imagine life without that thing. You can't imagine your life without it. And so what I really want to talk to you about today in light of all of that is how the amazing grace of God can transform what might be a least favorite thing in your life into something that maybe even you can't imagine your life without. I want to look today at how the grace of God calls us, invites us, even compels us to create the discipline of meeting with God. The discipline of meeting with God. And I think if you'll do this today, what you hear, I think if you'll create this discipline and my hope today, my goal is to inspire you to do this. I think if you'll do this, I think you'll find What began as a discipline really becomes a delight in your life. And a few quick things before we get going, some qualifiers, because some of you may be asking right off the top of Morgan, what is this thing called the grace of God? What's the grace of God? And if you're asking that, if you're asking that, and I hope you are, here's my best shot at it. Little working definition of grace. Here we go. Grace is getting what I want the most when I need it the most, when I deserve it the least. Actually, I want you to say that with me. I hope you'll get this for the series. We're going to look at this week by week. Grace is getting what I want the most when I need it the most, when I deserve it the least. Yeah, grace is something that you can't buy. Grace is something that you don't deserve. And grace is something that is, by the way, it's unique to the Christian faith. And we'll look at that a little more next week. You aren't a Christian, by the way, because you're a commandment keeper. You're good at keeping rules. Or because you're an eightfold path walker. So maybe from that background, you're a five pillar obeying person or even because you were born into a Christian family. 
Christian siblings or parents. No, you only become and can remain a Christian by the grace of God, by getting what you want the most, forgiveness, when you need it the most, when you deserve it the least. And I'm gonna, again, go way more in depth on that next week. But I wanted, what I want you to see today is that one of the things that experiencing that from God, experiencing grace from God, invites us to do is to create the discipline of meeting with him. Which brings us to something else before we get going, because for some of you, that may be, you hear that, that may be like a hard thing for you to believe. Uh, Or something you used to believe or you let go of or you used to believe, you don't believe it anymore. But let me tell you, Christians have always believed that the God of the universe was a personal God who wanted to speak to them personally, who knows them personally, uh, loves them personally. And you can know that today, not only from the record of many, many people throughout the Christian scriptures, we call it the Bible, who've experienced that in dramatic ways, but you can also know that from the testimony of people who are all around you today who would not only say that they know that God has met them and spoken to them personally, but they would also say, I think, as a mature Christian person, that they've only arrived at some place of maturity or peace or stability in their lives because of the practice of the spiritual discipline of meeting with God. So to see why all these things are true, I want to try to teach through this text just for a few moments and then show you three things about it I think will really help you. All right, teach of the text, three things I think will help you. Here we go. We're looking at the book of Hebrews today, as you heard, and if you're not familiar with it, Hebrews uh, was a book written to take all the significant storylines of the, what uh, Christians call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and to show how all those storylines find their ultimate fulfillment, their ultimate meaning, their ultimate expression in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So, so even though there's some complicated theology in the book of Hebrews, it's worth a dig by the way, here the writer who remains a mystery to us He or she, there's actually some question about that, though I think it's probably a he. The writer makes sure you get plenty of application to that theology along the way. So we're about to see how this writer applies a particular storyline to us. Here we go. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14. The writer says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So you can see the writers lifting up one of these Old Testament storylines here, the storyline of of the priest. The priest, the person of the priest was so important uh, in the Old Testament because the priest was a reconciling agent. You may know this. A priest stood between people and God and offered a sacrifice for the people's sin, the people's selfishness, and the, the person, the personal life of the priest was so important. Uh, the priest purity matter. The priest holiness matter. The priest inner life matter because if the priest life inner life wasn't right, if the priest didn't do his job right, everybody was in trouble. Oh, but the writer here says to people, you don't need a religious priest anymore. And by the way, I'm not your priest today. You'll be happy to know that. You don't need a religious priest anymore because Jesus 
Christ, the Son of God, he says, is your priest. He is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice through the power of his perfect life. And he proved his perfect life, you should know this, by rising from the dead in front of hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. And then hundreds and hundreds more people saw him ascend to heaven, it says, go back to heaven. And Christians from the beginning have insisted, and you should know this, and you know this if you've met him in your own way, that Jesus is still alive today. Alive today. So here's what's so powerful, though, about this perfect priest. The writer goes on, verse 15. He says, For we do not have the kind of high priest who's unable to empathize. Look at that word. With our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So Jesus was tempted just like you're tempted, but he chose what was right, good, best every time. Then the writer concludes with this powerful, powerful call to all of us. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I'll put this truth, this idea in the form of this question to you right now. Here's my question. Did you know that God wants to meet with you? Did you know that God wants to meet with you? He wants to meet with you. He wants you to meet with him. And you can know that, believe that from those, these four little words right here that God wants us to develop. He's calling us to develop this little discipline, the habit, the consistent pattern of meeting with him. Because the writer says, let us then, what? Approach. Approach. This word approach in the Greek, if you're a Bible nerd here, you may know this word approach is in what's called the aorist tense. It means to approach, to keep on approaching, to keep on keeping on, to keep on keeping on, to come on and keep on coming on, to continually keep showing up, to show up, to keep an appointment with God. This is saying God has a 24-7 open door policy for you, for me, every single day. And he wants to meet you at a kind of a place, at one place, the writer says, let us then approach, what? God's throne of grace. Why? So that we may be rejected, cast out, condemned, no, receive mercy, find grace to help us in our time of need. And this word right here, I'll talk about it a lot next week, but this word grace, grace, when you see this, let me tell you this word grace, this idea of grace, this is the one concept, this is the one thing that makes me wonder why everyone doesn't at least want Christianity to be true. Uh, I believe it is historically true, it is factually true, and I think you should too, but even beyond that, I want this to be true, because only Christianity says there is a priest On the throne, there is someone with all power in the universe. He sits on a throne like a king, and yet he longs to give grace and mercy to someone like you, someone like me. Hear me, there is a throne of grace for you and for me, and we are invited to approach it. So let me give you now three reasons why I think you need to, you ought to, you should approach this throne of grace even daily. Here we go. Number one, the throne of grace is where we find someone like us and not like us is where we find someone like us, not like us. So when I played college baseball many years ago, I encountered one person there during my career who really, really changed my life, maybe more than any, anyone else. His name was Lou 
Hernandez. And Lou was our strength coach. He was a five foot six Hispanic man from Alice, Texas. And you should know the strength coach on a college level, it is the one coach that the players love the most because unlike the head coach or assistant coaches, we're gonna get real weird or political or financial with your scholarship and all of that. The strength coach has one agenda. It's just to get you better. And Lou did that. He was a super swole dude. That means he was an extremely muscular individual. For those of you who don't know what that means, it's sort of like you're looking at right now. Thank you very much. You know, but Lou was about, again, he was five foot six, which meant that there was nowhere to go, for his muscles to go, but out. And so, for example, if he asked Lou to touch his elbows together, we'd be like, hey man, flex. He would try to touch your elbows together. He would go right down. And he just, his elbows could not get around the size of the pectoral mass between the points of his elbow. We'd say, hey Lou, hey, like touch your finger to your shoulder. And he would go, and the bicep would go up. And the finger literally could not get over between the shortness of his arms and the size of his biceps. And so, again, he was super swole. But what made Lou so helpful to us was that he was like us and that he had been an athlete, and yet he was unlike us in that he actually knew how to develop and train the human body to achieve peak results. See, someone only like us training us. Let's say some 150-pound freshman from a dorm named Johnny. Johnny, freshman dorm Johnny, would have on one hand, he would have been nice to have as a trainer, right? Because Johnny would never, ever be able to make us do anything we did not want to do. Our workouts would have been so peaceful, so restful, so not challenging. Here's the word, so accommodating, right? But guess what? We never could have changed. We never could have literally grown into something more than what we were on our own. But Lou, Lou is not like Johnny Dorm freshman. When Lou went easy on us, at times, sure, sure, we called him sweet Lou, it's true. When he was hard, we called him behind his back, never to his face, of course. We called him Lucifer, just anyway, that's what we called him, but... The point is, Lou was like us, and yet not like us, and because of that, he could make us better. But hear me, you have this to an infinite degree with the person of Jesus. He is like you in that he is human, and like you, he was tempted. It says, in every way, just like you are, and yet he's God. He never gave up or gave in. Let me ask you, are you tempted, perhaps today, tempted to despair? For example, over the loss of a loved one, despair, give up in life. Jesus, hear me, he lost his earthly father. His own cousin, John the Baptist, like a brother to him, was wrongly murdered. Are you tempted to misuse your sexuality? Listen, despite what that old Martin Scorsese film said or that new Netflix series says, by the way, Jesus fully obeyed and taught God's laws. Human body, his best practices regarding human sexuality, that sexual expression, Jesus taught, Matthew 19, Mark 10, sexual expressions reserved for one man, one woman, in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. He was a powerful draw. Jesus was a powerful draw for women. Look at all the women following him, and yet he never took advantage of them. I mean, he was like, hashtag me too, way before hashtag ever me too came along. Listen, are you tempted to abuse your power today? Jesus had it all. He leveraged it for the least of these. Are you tempted to hate people based on what they've done to you? Look at how Jesus lived. Is it you in an occupied state? Are you tempted to be passive? Look at Jesus confronting unjust power structures. Are you tempted to feel alone? His own disciples time after time failed him, left him. Hear me, empathy. Oh, it's such a powerful gift. And there is a throne of grace where you can meet someone who was tempted 
to despair, tempted to misuse his sexuality, to abuse power, to hate, to be passive, to feel alone, and yet he didn't. And yet at that same throne, we meet someone who is unlike us. And here, here, this is why this is so important. Because if your God, if he's only exactly like you, if your God only thinks what you think, votes how you vote if you could vote, if your God only believes what you can believe, if he only thinks what you think, that God can never change you. He can never correct you. That's just you, by the way, making up God making him in your own image. But hear me, you meet the one person, he's alive, who can really make you who you always wanted to be, not in the weight room, thank God, right? But in the throne room, at the throne of grace. The throne of grace shows us we have someone like us and yet unlike us. Now, some of you are saying, Morgan, I thought you said, I heard you say a minute ago, grace was like a gift. Uh, But what you just said, the workout room, weight room, that sounds like there's some kind of work involved. What's the deal? Let me just show you a second, something else about the throne of grace. Let's go on. Number two, the throne of grace also is always opposed to earning, but it's never opposed to effort. It's always opposed to earning, but it's never opposed to effort. Here's what I mean. While grace is a gift and you can't buy it, you don't deserve it. You can only receive it, not achieve it. Christians have always said, though, that the source of grace is not the universe at large, but it's a person in specific. Theologians call this idea the scandal of particularity. Which means that grace and salvation, it's offensive to us. It's like scandalous. Grace only comes from a person. The person's Jesus. And because Jesus is a person, that means you've got to do what you do with all people, all persons, you know, you've got to relate to him. And relationships, by the way, if you haven't noticed, relationships always require some work. Relationships always require a level of investment and time and energy and work. A few years ago, uh, one half of my family I had a family reunion uh, in, the, in the summer up in Crested Butte, Colorado, where a lot of that family is from. And so uh, one morning, uh, a bunch of our family just decided it would be a good idea to climb the mountain, Mount Crested Butte. No, by, 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 excuse me, by a bunch of people, I mean not me, they decided. So no preparation, information be danged, right? We're just going to go up and at it. And then, of course, you know, what could go wrong? by climbing Mount Crested Butte. What a nice sounding mountain, by the way. Crested, that sounds so nice. Butte, whatever that is, it's like halfway to beautiful. So of course it's gotta be nice. So what could go wrong? But what they should have named the mountain, I discovered at about 11,000 feet up, what they should have named it was Peak of Frozen Death. <laughs> or Mount Don't Even Think About It. Now, fortunately, I went with a couple of people. I have some, you know, my uncle Steve was with him. He's like this fish and game expert outdoorsman. I had a marine colonel uncle. Never found something he couldn't climb. And a couple of his boys, they were much braver than I was, way more experienced in this sort of thing. So after, after, yes, we made it to the top. uh, After we made it to the top, past trudging through snow up to our knees wearing shorts, because it's summer, thank you for the preparation. After navigating, this is true, sliding rock cascades where every time you took a step, these rocks would go down on the person behind you. You could slide 15 feet down. After making it to the top near a near borderline vertical climb without oxygen, we made it. And so I'll never forget coming to the top. There's this little circular area up there. It's got a sign. It's got the location. It's got the elevation. Never forget coming up into that moment, that space there at more than 12,000 feet up and experiencing a view 
or a moment I'll never forget, talking about it today. That view, here's the point, was always there, is there right now. It is available for every single person in the world to experience. It's free to experience, doesn't cost you. You can't create the view. You can only experience it. It's there right now. How do you get there? By approaching it, by climbing it, by approaching it and keep on keeping on and approaching and approaching and approaching and not quitting until you get there, until we got there. Come on. Didn't Jacob say in the Bible, God, I won't let you go until you bless me. Jacob did the clinging. God did the blessing. Didn't Moses climb a mountain to be with God? Yeah, Moses did the climbing. God did the speaking. Didn't God tell Elijah years later, climb that same mountain? He did. Elijah climbed. God did the whispering. Didn't Jesus take Peter, James, John up a mountain to climb a mountain with him? Yeah, they did. They climbed. Jesus revealed his glory. Hear me. Climb the mountain of your day. Climb the mountain of your morning, of your schedule. Approach that throne of grace. It's there for you right now. It's always opposed to earning, but it's never opposed to effort. And friend, if you'll do this, if you'll do this, if you climb that mountain, hear me, you'll find that. Number three, finally, <clears throat> the throne of grace is also where we are rewarded. It's where we are rewarded. And then let me tell you, this is not some American prosperity deal. This is not a financially deal here. But this is Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount saying something incredible about meeting with God. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus, words of Jesus say this. He says, but when you pray, he's assuming you will, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, let me ask you this. Let me ask you, what if you really believe this? Hmm? What if you really believe this? What if you really believed that if you developed the discipline of meeting with God, he would do what he said he would do and reward you? Some translation, another version says publicly. Huh? Do you think that might change how you lived? I think it might. And I think, I think that one of the greatest rewards we could ever receive, here's the reward, is more of God's presence. It's a tangible sense of the nearness of the reality of Almighty God. And here is why, here is why the presence and the nearness and the friendship of God is its own reward. The presence, the friendship, the nearness of God is its own reward because his nearness helps us face and to conquer what is perhaps our greatest struggle in life, which is to face and conquer our own fears. See, human beings, you know this, we're gripped by fear. Oh, but doesn't the scripture say, his perfect love casts out fear. Oh, but you know this, we struggle with fear. God knows this. And this is why, this is why over and over and over again in the Bible, more than anything God says to people, you can read for yourself. God tells people when he shows up. Angels tell people when they show up. Jesus tells people when he he shows up. Fear not. Don't be afraid. You don't have to fear. We're afraid in life because we don't believe God is for us. We're afraid to take that bold step, career, book, degree, whatever, business, because we're afraid it won't work out. We're afraid of what the future holds. We're afraid of what the news might mean. 
what that diagnosis means from the doctor. Or you're afraid what it means now that that thing's happened. Maybe the divorce was finalized. What's going to happen? We live in a culture where we're insured past our eyeballs. We sue anyone who threatens our safety. Why? Because we're afraid. And what we're afraid of most of all, what that all reveals is we're afraid that God doesn't love us. That he isn't for us and somehow isn't with us. Oh, but look at what the writer of Hebrews says. You can approach, you ought to approach that throne of grace with what? Confidence. Boldness. He says, come boldly. He's saying, approach with guts. God wants to reward you. Which tells me this. God wants to reward us by meeting us in that place where we might be afraid. And to bring transformation there. And that happens through the discipline of meeting with him at the throne of grace. A couple of years ago around Christmas, I got to fulfill sort of a lifetime dream come true. I got to take my kids snow skiing. Yeah. And we found this one little lift, one lift place, tiny little place on the side of the road outside Dolores, Colorado. But it didn't matter because the snow was great. We were all pumped to be there at least at the beginning (laughs) while the day was young. If you've ever tried to snow ski, you know, it's super hard. It could be really tricky at first. And after a few hours, one of my sons in particular was really struggling just getting down the easy slope. And there were some tears there were some tantrums on the side of the mountain there were some moments where he wanted to quit and he swore that he wouldn't get up he wouldn't put his skis back on so I went to him and I said buddy I said listen it's no big deal if you don't want to do this it's no big deal you know you don't have to ski but you can't stay here because I said you'll die side of the mountain we're going home at some point so you can just slide down or something and be done. It's all good. Go drink cocoa in a lodge or whatever. But he looked at me and he said, I don't want to be done. I thought, oh, well, gee whiz, your body language and your vocabulary tells me otherwise. But I said, why not? He says, because I want to go with you all the way to the top. And I said, well, buddy, you know, those are the, those are the tougher slopes up there. Those are the blues, if you know what that means, and skiing parlance. I said, those aren't easy. I said, but, okay, fine, I'll make you a deal. If you can make it down this one tougher slope, all the way down this green slope, without falling, it only goes halfway up the mountain, I'll take you up there. And he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he couldn't get it, and he, he, he's almost quit. But then near the end of the afternoon, like the, like the last minute, sunsetting, all that, when he was at the point of quitting, his last chance, he got off the lift, He looked down the mountain, he pointed his skis straight down, and he went down the mountain in a literal straight line, (laughs) in a literal straight line. He flew it down, and somehow, I don't know how this happened, it's a true story, he stopped himself at the bottom right before he just blew up a group of kindergartners there for the ski school. (laughs) He lifted up both his arms, and he cheered for himself. Yeah, it was amazing. And, I, and, I, and so I, I took him back up and we went up to the top of that harder slope together. And when we got home one day, I said, I said, buddy, what motivated you to do that? Because after he did that, it inspired his brother. And so they looked at him like, if he can do it, we can do it. And they tried to do it too. How did you do it? I said, there would have been no shame in not trying. And I want to hear, I want to tell you today, there's no shame. Here. There's no condemnation, no shame. But he just looked at me and he said this, I just kept thinking about going all the way to the top of the mountain with you, with you. And let me tell you, hear me. There is a place at the top for you and your father. 
For you and your Father. It's the throne of grace. There is a reward available for you there. It's made available because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. He was the priest who didn't just offer another sacrifice for you. He offered himself what the blood, the Hebrew says, of another sacrifice couldn't do. And let me tell you what the blood, sweat, and tears of your job or your life can never do for you. What morality or immorality can never do for you. Jesus has done. He's made a way. For you to encounter Almighty God at a place you don't deserve to go, but now you've got every right to live at. It's a throne of grace. It's for you and for me. So friends, let's come boldly. As the hymn says, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne to make all my wants and wishes known. And since he bids me seek his face, I believe his word and trust his grace. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.